So many years ago, I read about an experiment that some researchers carried out. They had people walk up to a buzzer, press it, and get hit with a painful electric jolt. Sound like fun? Yeah. And then the researchers asked, would you pay money not to feel that again? Okay. And most of the people said, yes, indeed, they would pay up to 10 bucks not to feel it. Now for part two of the experiment. The researchers asked these same people to go into a room with a desk and a chair, that's all, and just sit there quietly for 10 minutes. Okay, don't read, don't walk around, don't take a nap, don't look at any screens, just sit quietly with your thoughts. Or, if you really want to, you can hit that same buzzer and get another electric jolt. Okay. So, turns out just under half of the women and about 70% of the men hit the buzzer and got the jolt that they had just said that they would pay money never to feel again. Wow, right? I've been impressed and awed with those statistics ever since I read this like 15 years ago. Buzzer over boredom, right? Can we really not stand to be with ourselves for 10 minutes in the quiet? One of the things that I see in this is that it's hard to sit and be quiet. That in our society, we crave stimulation so much that we're willing to endure pain to get it. Or put another way, we fear being alone so much that we're willing to endure pain to get away from it, right? So what's so scary about being alone with ourselves and our thoughts? Maybe nothing, maybe everything. After all, following Walt Whitman, we know that we are large and we contain multitudes. And some of those multitudes can be loud, angry, guilt-ridden, laden with trauma, right? And a whole host of other ways really hard to sit with. But we don't get away from those parts of ourselves by ignoring them or running away from them or drowning them out with voices from headphones or screens. As Ama Matrona says, we carry ourselves with us wherever we go, and we cannot escape temptation by mere flight. And that's true whether that temptation is to drinking or drugs, to anger or rage, or just to ignoring what we don't want to see even inside ourselves. Alma Matrona was one of a group of ascetics known as the Desert Mothers and Fathers who lived in the 4th and the 5th centuries. At a time when Christianity was moving from earlier periods of persecution into a state-supported, highly respectable religion, right? the Desert Mothers and Fathers chose to live instead outside of that respectability with its money pouring into churches and its growing political influence. And instead, they were living in the unforgiving wilderness 
of the Egyptian and Syrian deserts. Where the Christian church of the time was growing in power, these desert dwellers stressed the importance of humility. And as the church centered more and more on doctrine, the desert mothers and fathers stressed that the scripture written on the heart had more importance than anything that one could read with the eyes. So they stressed psychology and intention over ritual and action. And in many ways, they stood as witness against the growing tendency to equate outward action with inward salvation. And salvation was definitely the name of the game for these desert ascetics. But we, before we jump to a Jesus is my personal Lord and Savior frame of reference for what I just said, let's step back and see what they mean by salvation. Abba and Amma are the names that are used. Abba means father, Amma means mother. According to Amma Syncletica, one of the few women whose words are recorded in what is traditionally known as the sayings of the desert fathers, right? Salvation then is exactly this, the twofold love of God and of our neighbor. So not some otherworldly action, not something that happens after death, but the way a person loves and lives in it in this life. It is transformation that takes place over time. She also said that the importance of giving alms or charity is not so much about feeding the poor, right, just handing things out, but about teaching people love and mutual concern. It's great to write a check to a cause or hand a meal to a person experiencing homelessness, but the real meaning of charity or caritas, Syncletica is saying, is to witness to the humanity of this other person and be transformed by it. Salvation, right here, right now. So these desert mothers and fathers, they lived a long time ago and in a setting that is just about as different from American society as you can get, right? But as we see, they've got wisdom that we can still learn from. And I'd like to spend this time with you sharing some of their words and thoughts around two concepts that come up especially often in their writings. Solitude and humility. Silence, solitude, and humility. So if you look around at your society with all of its bustling and bristling and say, I'm out of here, and head for the desert, you might be looking forward to a little peace and quiet. But the desert fathers and mothers, they were looking forward to more than just getting away from some noisy neighbors. I've got they wanted the kind of silence that goes all the way to the bone, right? And the older ones warned the younger ones about being bamboozled into just keeping their mouths shut and thinking they had it figured out. 
One story is told of a desert father who announced his plans to shut himself into his cell and refuse the face of people that he might perfect himself. Getting away from all of you, see ya. I'm done. Another monk dropped a truth bomb on him. Unless thou first amend thy life going to and fro amongst people, thou shalt not avail it to amend it dwelling alone. Right? So if you can't be around people and live right, then you're not going to live right when you're off by yourself. Being alone and silent isn't going to do anything if you're living in ways that hurt yourself and others. Another desert father, Amma Poman, took it a little farther, and he said, a man may seem silent, but if his heart is condemning others, he's babbling incessantly. Silence, Alba Poman tells us, is not about the amount of words you speak, but about the amount of peace you keep in your heart. At another time, when a young brother asked him how to live, the opera replied, keep silence and do not always be comparing yourself with others. If you are silent, you will have peace wherever you live. So silence is about moving in the world without judgment of ourselves or others. It's about recognizing that that record player, that record that plays over and over in our head, telling us that those people aren't good enough or that I'm not good enough, is just a lie. And then turning that record down and down and down until finally it's off. That's silence. So when we speak, we can speak from within that silence rather than from the babble of judgment. Alma Matrona goes farther and says that silence must reach not only from our mouths to our hearts, but also from our other senses as well. And it's like she's speaking directly to our screen-addicted and overstimulated society. She says, how can we guard our heart when the door of the tongue is open, as well as of the eyes and the ears? If you want to guard your heart and become perfected in the virtues, sit, remain in silence in your cell, and your cell will teach you everything. So Matrona is telling us that we need to pay attention to all the stimulation that we're bringing in and what effect it's having on us. Something she and the other desert ascetics figured out long before modern researchers began realizing the dangerous effects of comparing ourselves, right, to all of these unrealistic images that are being reinforced by magazine ads and Instagram posts and just about every kind of media that we can imagine. And as for the last part of that quote, where a matrona says to sit in your cell and your cell will teach you everything, well, I don't have a cell, and I don't imagine many of you do either. And if somebody does have a cell in their house, we may have to worry about you a little bit. 
But Matrona isn't talking about a, um, a real cell, right, as we think of in sort of, sort of prison cell. That's the name for a traditional room in a monastery that a monk lives in, or a hut or a cave, in the case of these desert dwellers. It's a place where somebody could be alone. She's telling us to learn from silence, from solitariness. In fact, she's telling us not to hit that buzzer for an electric jolt, right? Rather, to deal with the thoughts as they arise. And in the words of Jacob to the angel, to say to those thoughts, I will not let that go unless thou bless me. So how do we do this when we don't live in a desert? And when many of us don't have quiet houses, and maybe we don't even have solitary rooms or quiet places to be. So I'm gonna go back to our friend Amasin Kletika for another dose of wisdom on this one. She says, there are many who live in the mountains and behave as if they were in a town, and they're wasting their time. It's possible to be a solitary in one's own mind while living in a crowd, and it's possible for one who lives as a solitary to live in the crowd of one's own thoughts. So it's all about finding that interior silence and solitariness, that peace of non-judgment of ourselves and others. In the seminary classes I teach, I always have students perform contemplative activities each week. They can choose many different kinds of activities of which like meditation and contemplative prayer are just one kind. And over the years, I've had many neurodivergent students who find that they achieve the silence described by the desert mothers and fathers best with music or a podcast blaring or by fidgeting and pacing, right? Not my way to silence, maybe, but it works for them. They get it. They find their own path to the silence of the heart that allows them deep rest, deep non-judgment, radical openness to the holy, and to wonder everything that these desert ascetics are talking about. So here amidst the hundreds of thousands of people in Middle Tennessee, in the noise and overstimulation of a city, the likes of which the desert mothers and fathers could never even have dreamed of, I challenge you to find a time for solitariness and silence in the week to come. Interior silence and solitariness, whatever that looks like for you on the outside, like meditation, a quiet walk, raking leaves, blaring death metal as you make art, whatever. Whatever brings you that, pay, that space of, of interior silence, of non-judgment of yourself and others, Radical openness to the holy and to wonder. 
however it looks in your life, go sit in your cell and let your cell teach you something. Now let's talk about humility. Humility gets a bad rap nowadays when it stands just on its own. Intellectual humility, yeah, we're down for that. Right? Cultural humility, we know we need that. We're not always good at it, but we know we need it. But just straight up humility sounds too much like humiliation. And you don't often hear you use talking about it. But the desert fathers and mothers certainly didn't shy away from the topic. Our good friend Amasincletica told her followers to let humility become for you the beginning and end of the virtues. So the traditional Christian list of faith, hope, and love, she's saying, begin and end in humility. Now, we're more used to hearing something like love filling that position. So how could Sincletica put this kind of focus on humility? Well, it's because she thought that humility was necessary for love to grow. She said, for just as it is impossible for a ship to be built without nails, so it is impossible to be saved without humility. And we've already seen how she taught that salvation was about loving God and loving our neighbors in the here and now. So we're getting into the heart of this, all right? When Sincletica is talking about humility, she means radical vulnerability. Being with God and others in deep, open-heartedness rather than with that steel-plated armor that we're all used to wearing. Drop your ego, she's saying, and recognize that everyone and everything has a lesson to teach you. As another ascetic, Abba Poman says, always and in all matters, believe yourself to be in need of learning. And throughout the whole of your life, you will be shown to be wise. Poman also ta taught that humility helps us stay in right relationship with each other. A brother asked Abba Poman, how can a man avoid condemning his neighbor? The elder responded, we and our brother are dual images. Whenever a man is attentive to himself and reproaches himself, he finds his brother to be virtuous. But when he thinks that he himself is good, he finds his brother to be evil in his sight. So when we don't have some humility about ourselves and our own faults, we are more likely to spend time thinking about the faults of others. We know that to be true, right? Sincletica recognized that humility was about setting aside ego, and she quipped that those who are describing their own successes should try to mention the weaknesses that go along with them. Not what you're likely to find on your random website bio or resume these days. But setting aside of ego is central to understanding our real place in this big and glorious world. Here are two statements I recently came across in an article for fund managers about risks and the markets. Pairs perfectly with desert aesthetics, right? Yeah. Two statements. 
No one is thinking about you as much as you are. Number two, your personal experiences make up maybe point zero 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 one percent of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you think the world works. Right? Yeah. Humility, people. The author is pointing to setting aside the ego and recognizing that while each person has worth and dignity, there's a whole big world of worth and dignity out there. And each of us is just an infinitesimal part of it. So this week, I challenge you to recognize a moment where your ego is showing. Pull it back some. Let humility be for you in that moment, the beginning and end of the virtues. Silence and humility. I will finish with the words of Amasera that arise from that interior silence of non-judgment and the action of humility. I've got a printout of these words, and they're right in front of me as I sit at my desk at work. Good reminder. If I prayed to God that all people should approve of my conduct, I should find myself endlessly penitent before each person's door. I shall not ask this. I shall pray instead that my heart may be pure toward all. Amen, and may it be so.